Welcome to Figuring Out, a podcast where we discuss all things related to relationships, intimacy, identity, power dynamics, and more. My name is Michaela. My name is Kanako. And my name is Newell. And you're listening to Figuring Out, a matter of normativity and non-traditional relationships. We'd just like to welcome back any of our returning listeners, um, welcome some new listeners who may be tapping into figuring out for the first time, and just thank people for you know coming back to whatever, wherever you're streaming in from um, after a long summer break. So we're super excited to have you and super grateful that you are loyal to the podcast. We appreciate you. Yeah, thank you so much to everyone who is tuning in, and we're so excited to share this new or this continuation of figuring out with you this semester. Um, so I just want to dive right into the topic, um, amado normativity and non-traditional relationships. Maybe we can start by just defining some terms that we're going to be using throughout this episode. We're realizing that these topics and terms are ones that maybe aren't as used frequently in our day-to-day discussions about how we relate to one another. So we just want to lay down some groundwork um, so that we all know when we use these words, what do we actually mean? Um, so amatonormativity is a term that was coined by Dr. Elizabeth Brake, uh, and she defines it as, quote, the widespread assumption that everyone is better off in an exclusive romantic long-term coupled relationship and that everyone is seeking such relationships end quote so yeah i guess i just wanted to open it up uh start by asking the two of you is this a term that you have ever come across before um does it resonate with you do you feel like a matter normativity is a thing that you have experienced in your day-to-day life I feel like the term amount of normativity, I definitely have never heard of before. This is my very first time, but I think definitely as young people, as you know, adolescents into like teenage years, into college years, I think that that is definitely a prominent assumption that, you know, everyone should be living for love. Everybody should be in a romantic relationship. If you're not, then there's an issue. Yeah, I'd also have to agree with um, Newell. I've never heard of amatonormativity from before, but I think the concept of like always being in a relationship and seeing like a relationship as like a social kind of like status is one that I've noticed in like my life and like just experiences with friends and conversation. So it was really interesting to put like a word to it. Yeah, similar to the two of you, this is a word that I really hadn't come across um, until pretty recently in my life. And the the pathway that I kind of stumbled upon this term, I think, is very related to the roots of this word. Um, so amatonormativity is kind of like this play on heteronormativity, which is the assumption that, you know, everyone is heterosexual and desires to be in a heterosexual relationship. Um, and you know this is also related to gender in that it reinforces this idea of a gender binary and that there's only you know cis men and cis women i kind of came across this term through the root of like queer studies um, but also specifically so i am someone who like identifies as being on the ace spectrum and so the identities of uh, aromantic and asexual like arrow ace studies is definitely one that has been really influential in kind of creating and curating this term because I think it like people who hold these identities really challenge the assumption that everyone wants to be and experiences romantic and sexual attraction. 
Um, so kind of to just do some more defining, um, because I think that, you know, arrow ace people are often excluded from conversations around like LGBTQ identity. So aromantic um, is someone who does not experience romantic attraction and asexual is someone who does not experience sexual attraction. And you'll probably hear me shorten those to arrow and ace. And then alloromantic is someone who does experience romantic attraction and allosexual is someone who does experience sexual attraction. The way that it's usually kind of used is the romantic attraction goes first and then the sexual attraction goes second. So if I say that I'm allo ace, that means I do experience romantic attraction, I don't experience or have like a different relationship with sexual attraction. And I also want to emphasize that like these things are on a spectrum of like, you can be someone who experiences sexual attraction in very specific contexts. So there's like demisexuality, which is about you only experience sexual attraction when you have a pre-existing like emotional connection or like a deep connection with this person. So that's kind of like a brief overview. I'm not sure if that um, provided enough clarity. Are there things that either of you want to like dive in deeper on? Well, I think it's really good that you brought up the fact that there's a spectrum because like not everything is black and white. And I feel like in terms of like um, arrow and ace, like the spectrum, it's important to realize that like not everybody's gonna like experience those things the same way. And I've also been like exposed to like demisexuality and I understand like how that works and that's also a spectrum. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and I think also the split attraction model, which is what I've been kind of positing, uh, assumes that there is this distinct difference between romantic and sexual attraction. Um, thus, you know, the terms of like arrow ace or I don't know, arrow allo, but it's not the only model that exists. It's just the model that's the most commonly used in kind of these arrow ace communities. And so basically just thinking through like, this can be a really helpful model and the boundaries between like platonic, romantic, sexual, I don't, I personally don't believe are like so rigid and so easily defined, which can make everything very confusing. But I think also leaning into that, that multiplicity and like the ways that we relate to other people is also a part of challenging amatonormativity. And then the other side of amatonormativity that I wanted to kind of bring up is this idea of polyamory and thinking about how the dominant culture uh, really emphasizes monogamy as like this really desirable like pinnacle of how we relate to one another. And also differentiating though between polyamory and polygamy because I think that polygamy often has a lot of problematic, I mean, not to say that, you know, other terms don't have problematic origins or associations, but I think polygamy as an institution has often been used in a way where, you know, there's an exclusivity that is expected from women and femme identifying individuals, whereas men are allowed to have multiple partners. And if that is consensual on all parties involved, and it's affirmative consent, then, you know, there's not anything wrong with that specific structure. But thinking about the histories of how that is imposed, which I think we might be getting into a little bit later down the line on this podcast. Yeah, just being mindful of 
the power dynamics that are with, present within this history of monogamy and polygamy, um, while also recognizing the really valuable intervention of polyamory as a way of pushing back against this conception that there's one right way to be in romantic or sexual relationship with another person. That was like a very brief overview. I feel like, you know, every term that we've talked about so far could be like a whole episode in and of itself, but we just wanted to lay down the groundwork of what some of the concepts we're going to be touching upon in this episode is. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. I know I've been kind of talking at you all for a while. Maybe we can move on to some of the more like juicy conversational bits. And I also just want to add that like I'm not an expert on any of these things by any means. I have, you know, my own personal experiences to draw on and like I did a little bit of research for this episode for this podcast, but um, I think just recognizing that meanings are very multiple and variable and all of these terms and all of these identities have such a rich history um, and I don't want to flatten any of them by saying like this is all there is to it. This is just what I know at my current situated moment in time. So yeah, thank you all for listening. Thank you Kanako for you know setting up the podcast with those definitions. Um, I think going into the next segment, I think it's important to talk about in what ways the prioritization of monogamous romantic sexual relations as the most important side of relationship building can be harmful even for the individuals that don't identify as aero, ace, or poly. For me, um, I was thinking of like the idea of relationships and marriage and how it's ingrained in us from like a young age. I don't know about you guys, but I used to like watch like Disney movies and like being a young girl and seeing like the notion of like happily ever after linked with this idea of like a princess finding her prince. Um, That's just one way like the media framed the importance of like romantic relationships. And this idea of happily ever after didn't like really stop in my childhood. I see it like today as a young adult and there's still movies that portray romantic relationships in this way um, with much more passion, drama and conflict. And um, it kind of sets up this kind of theme of struggle love, I think. And this depiction puts like high expectations of like marriage, reinforces like unhealthy expectations of love, giving the message that happiness is found through romantic dynamics, despite like the often tumultuous journey. But there's like profound evidence that proves happiness doesn't have to be confined to marriage. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you bring up like Disney movies and like Happily Ever After as like our first introduction into that. My mind instantly went to Rapunzel or like Fiona and how like they were literally stuck in the tower and their lives could not begin until they were able to begin romantic relationships. When like that is far from the truth, but you can live a completely full life and your life can be like, there are other things that you can find joy from apart from being married, apart from being with a partner. And I think it's super interesting that these are the stories that are told to very young children, very young girls and like things that are you should be aspiring for. Yeah, Michaela, I really appreciated what you were bringing up um, about kind of this weird dichotomy of either this like Disney fairy tale, like because there it is true love, there is no conflict, there is only a happily ever after, juxtaposed with this, if it's true love, you will persevere through some really harmful and oftentimes I think media depict like really toxic relationships as something to aspire to. Um, and it's 
the harm and the violence um, in its various forms is really justified under the name of this idea of true love. And I think that it really imposes kind of this expectation that if you're really in love with someone, if you really love someone, you'll endure like this really toxic behavior in ways that obviously disproportionately impact um, women and femmes and people who carry marginalized identities. Yeah, thank you guys for giving like so much insight to that. And like going off of like what you guys have said, like there is like evidence that you can be happy and like single because you're more likely to like foster social connections that bring fulfillment. Whereas like married people often find themselves with like less consciously choosing like their social networks, such as like spouse, spouses, family members. And single people are also more likely to like volunteer, participate in social events. And by contrast, married and cohabitating individuals tend to become more socially isolated, even without the excuse of children. I just don't understand why there's like this standard that you have to be in like a committed relationship to really fulfill your like happiness. And social connectedness, I think is also like linked to happiness. So this might go a long way towards explaining why single people aren't as miserable as many people would would imagine them to be. There's more evidence, but instead it is more useful to focus on why so many people seem to take the suggestion that single women are doing just fine without men and children so personally and so badly because oftentimes when like a woman is single, it's like looked at as like, why are you so happy? Like you shouldn't be happy. You should be fiending for like this marriage and this idea of like being a mother. And like, that's not necessarily the case for everyone. I think this narrative like is very pervasive in our society and just like the way that um, people use marriage as like a social status. Like oftentimes women feel like they are like better than other women because they do have this ring and this, you know, like happy family. But why do we um, attribute happiness to things like that? Yeah, I love how you bring up like social connectedness and the ways in which single people um, are more like connected to their social environment, um, which makes me think of like my doctor was talking to me and she told me about like, she went to college in Maine and she went to college with her boyfriend and she talked about like how she had like one other friend besides her boyfriend and like that sustained her for the entire four years of college, which I mean, it really is a shame that, you know, there are so many other relationships that you can make. There's so many other bonds that you can make outside of that one partner. And to think that like someone can spend like your entire four years in like a new city, in a new environment and not make any, you know, lasting friendships out of that place because, you know, you decided to, every part of your social interaction was with that one person, um, kind of just limits yourself and limits the, you know, amount of growth that you have socially, I think. Yeah, I think also like this idea of marriage is really interesting. I have a whole rant on marriage as an institution, which I came across a queer of color critique. Shout out to you, Professor Perez. He's probably not listening, but I really love him and I love the class. Um, But anyways, all of this is coming from like a scholarship of uh, queer femmes and women of color, especially black women, but really questioning the ways that marriage is like an institution that's imposed by the state and like how much 
weight it's given in ways that other relationships aren't like you can get citizenship through marriage you can get medical benefits through marriage you can get access to so many things like tax benefits through marriage um and obviously those things are very unevenly distributed in depending on like the identities of the people who are getting married but it's like really just thinking about like why is it that marriage is given so much weight whereas like i can't say like oh this person is my really good friend and so i want to share my health insurance benefits with them and thinking about like why is that and also what does it mean to allow certain institutions to dictate like which relationships are important enough for those like kind of communal relations or like sharing of resources to happen i think really ties into what both of you were raising about this idea that romantic and sexual relationships especially of like this this idea of like a long-term committed romantic and sexual relationship is prioritized in ways that aren't just about like how people perceive you or like the social status but also about like very real material benefits that are given out yeah and i think just to jump off of that point, Kanako, in terms of marriage as an institution, like when you think about the history of marriage and how it is literally like an act of possession over another person, like that was how it was intended to be for men to then have possession of a woman as a form of property. Um, and like the ways in which that's how all of these benefits and how all of these, you know, this documentation is and this status is all passed on to the woman through her husband, um, you know, formerly through her father. I think it's really interesting that, you know, those are the ways that I never thought about, about how marriage has come to be. And like, when you mentioned like citizen, citizenship status and things like that like the fact that so many of those things are not like familial but more through romantic partnerships who may or may not have you know longevity may or may not have you know the type of type of commitment that a friendship may have or a familial relationship may have um super interesting yeah and i think what's really crazy is that like even though like people might be single and um enjoying their time single people do also endorse this kind of idea of marriage and they uphold like the notion of like committed relationships even though they suffer like negative stereotyping due to like singleism as like a direct result of like endorsing the in the marriage myth and that like kind of brings me into like this idea of like bro code and chicks before dicks because i feel like you know oftentimes like a hoe is just like a woman that's not really your wife you're not committed to her you're just trying to get what you want from her sexually and same with like the whole like idea of chicks before dick. And these instances, I feel like oftentimes friends do come before like a hookup. Um, but like when it starts to become more than a hookup, I feel like that's where there's like a shift and people do tend to like put their friends on the back burner for their relationships. So I guess like looking at like, how do you make time for a relationship and also a friend and not lose yourself in just like a relationship and why do why do people put relationships over their friends who've been there for them for the longest yeah i really appreciate you raising that question michaela i feel like i've been very much on like the oh like systems of oppression train this episode but you know sometimes it's just that kind of week um i'm thinking a lot about capitalism and the idea of like limited resources are more valuable um, and this idea of like romantic love and the implicit like um, monopoly of romantic love that like you're only supposed to have one romantic partner 
whereas you can have multiple friends and like because romantic love is like this scarcity that like when you have it that's more valuable that's more important than like this resource of platonic affection that you are able to receive from multiple sources. I don't know if that's a reach, but I think that it feels very relevant to this idea of like, this kind of love is harder to come across and therefore more valuable. And so I'm going to prioritize it over my friends. But when it's like just about sexual relationships, there isn't that implicit, like, especially for men, um, especially for cis men, I guess, just thinking about the ways that sexual relationships are supposed to be kind of like abundant and therefore, you know, the people that you're in relationship aren't as valuable or like the people that you're hooking up with aren't as valuable. Yeah, I think that was a good um, thing that you brought up, Kanako, about the value of like the person that you're hooking up with versus um, romantic partner and how like allocation of resources kind of plays into that like capitalistic mindset in terms of relationship that I never really thought about. So thank you for bringing that up. I also was just thinking about like how in terms of integration, like putting both groups together, you know, like hanging out with your friends and your boyfriend maybe. But I know like some pe sometimes people don't like to like integrate the both of those aspects. And that's also like something that I'm interested in delving into more. Um, and I also think that also goes into what you said, Kanako. Thank you, Michaela, for deep diving into a lot of different ways that we prioritize monogamous uh, relationships. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking a lot about alternative structures and alternative forms of relating to people um, that have developed in resistance and violation to imaginativity um, and why these things may be more beneficial than the nuclear family model. Um, and so I did a lot of research into ways that people cohabitated prior to living with romantic partners. Um, and there's this history of Boston marriages, which originated at the start of the 20th century. Um, these were mostly wealthy, upper-class white women um, who had just begun their education. And a lot of them were just starting to get their education, just starting to um, develop in their careers. And they were fearful of that, of what would happen when they would get married to a man. And they, you know, didn't want a lot of those freedoms um, and a lot of those, you know, things to be taken away from them. And they didn't want to transition into working in the home um, and wanted to continue their careers. And so a lot of these women um, started to live with each other. And some of them did develop romantic relationships, but a lot of them developed platonic relationships as well, um, just amongst friends that decided to live together. And I think that this, model is very interesting to make more so a long-term commitment to live with each other because I think that in our societal framework we see you know each people moving out people moving out of uh, their home going to college and then after college you are either you know it's acceptable to live with a roommate or a housemate you know um, while you're trying to afford living on your own and people don't necessarily see living with friends as like the end goal of where your living arrangement should be you're either living alone um in at the in-between stage of trying to afford living alone or living with a partner um and i think that for the most part that is acceptable until people get older until they reach 
their, you know, late 20s um, until they get into like their 30s. And then I think that like it starts to raise suspicion as to why that person isn't choosing to live with a romantic partner. A lot of experiences of living, of being single or living alone or living with friends are very gendered um, because I think that for men, living alone or being single, et cetera, is seen as, you know, he's still playing the field, you know, he doesn't want commitment, he is still figuring it out. And I think that for women, it plays back into the trope of she's waiting. She's she's a princess that's waiting on her prince. Nobody, nobody wants her. Nobody desires her. Nobody has chosen her. And so because nobody has chosen her now, she has to settle and live with a friend or live alone. Um, and it kind of make it look as if like she's damaged in a way. Yeah, I think to touch on the whole um, Boston marriage thing, I also was like researching about like um, non-romantic, like co-parenting and there's this thing called like elective co-parenting. So it's like an arrangement when like, it's very similar to like Boston marriages, but I think there's like a website that people go on to like find a non-romantic partner to co-parent with. And it's really interesting because they're able to like share the emotional, physical, psychological side of like raising a child and it actually does work really well. And I think in in terms of like how single mothers are like viewed in society, it's they're kind of like viewed in a bad light. Like, you know, everyone always says like a child needs like two parents, even though single mothers do not choose, you know, to raise their kids alone. But I think for people who want to have kids, but don't really have anyone rely on to have a child, I think elective co-parenting would be pretty cool. And I thought it was interesting. And also to add on to what you said about like the whole like difference between men and women in terms of like being single in your adult years, I would definitely have to agree because I feel like, you know, when a man is um, older and single, he's looked at as a bachelor, especially if he doesn't have kids, it's like, oh, he's, he doesn't have no kids, he's over 30, you know, like that's a good thing. But for a woman, if you're like over 30 and you don't have children, it brings up like a a issue of like what's wrong with you, especially because of the whole biological clock thing. And like, you know, like some women don't wanna have kids and they're judged for that too. So I thought that was really interesting that you brought that up. Yeah, in terms of elective co-parenting, I'm also thinking about like communal living, um, I think is something that I think about a lot in terms of like, what would it look like to live in a communal space where like maybe you personally don't want to have children, but there's, you know, someone else who has a child and it's like a communal responsibility or you're accountable to your community to like help nurture and foster the children that are there. And I also think a lot about like the college experience as a site of like very like queer forms of living together that like in any other context would be like really questioned of like, you know, living in a house with four other people um, and like, you know, you may or may not have romantic or sexual attachments to people, but like you're just like living together, cohabitating 
Um, yeah, and like you were saying, uh, like the both of you were saying, like the moment that you're like mid thirties or like older, that's considered like really weird um, and no longer acceptable. But then how that that form of like communal living kind of can come back um, once people are kind of seen as like no longer within the realm of like romantic and sexual activeness, if that makes sense. Because I'm thinking a lot about like it doesn't have to even be nursing homes, but like you know, there's there's like phenomena of older people who financially can't afford to live alone like choosing to cohabitate and also like oftentimes single um, older people who you know are looking for a sense of community and connection and choose to cohabitate um, even though that might not be like about romantic or sexual attraction or relationship with the people that you're living with and how I don't know I don't know if this is true but I kind of feel like it's often looked down upon um as like oh like you don't have someone like in your old age to like you know you don't have your person and so you have to rely on these structures yeah Kanaka a lot of what you said resonated with me and brought up a lot of different thoughts um particularly because I think you brought up this example of people that are like older and deciding to cohabitate together as a form of like taking care of each other and being in the space together, which I think, you know, makes an entire, like a whole lot of sense. And it was about like my own grandmother who she's not married. And she, at one point she moved in with one of like her best friends who she calls her sister. And, you know, we're like, okay, that's super awesome. Like you and your best friend get to live together and like crochet together and watch TV, like that's amazing. And she was so adamant about like, well, I have to find my apartment, I have to find my apartment because I don't want to be like a burden to her. I don't want to like, you know, I'm like infringing on like her house and I don't want to like take up space in her house because she felt like, I don't know, I think we view society as very like individualistic. And so like, if you are, you can't just live with your friend and let it be that and like, you know, let that be a long-term like plan. It has to be in a way that like, oh, you're inconveniencing the person by living with them or you're like, you're a burden to them, which I thought was really interesting because now she lives alone and all we do is worry about her when she lives alone. So I don't know, I think that some some arrangements are better than others. I think that would have been a, the most ideal arrangement. And um, going back to the elective co-parenting, I don't think this is what you mean, McKay. Okay, can we also clarify? Is elective co-parenting meaning that there are two people that are like friends and they decide to have a child together? That's what you're talking about? Well, from like the article I read, it could be friends or like just random people. Like it's like a internet type thing. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Um, yeah, I am thinking a lot about, yeah, as you said, single mothers who, you know, may decide to live together, may decide to, you know, have a two-parent household where they're able to provide childcare for each other, able to pick up each other's kids from school, able to have like, you know, two parents keep an eye on their kids. Um, and this is definitely something that like two of my aunts are doing currently. Um, my dad's two sisters, they actually like just bought a house together like last month and they're both divorced. And now all my cousins live together, which is so amazing and so wonderful. And I think that if they had done that when they were much younger, cause now they're like, 50 in their 50s if they had done this when they were much young, younger there would have been a lot of like pushback i think because people are like oh well, you're young you still have time like why would you don't don't buy a house yet wait until you have your forever partner and then you guys buy a home together um and so i think that now because they are you know in their 50s and they are like 
you know, they've been divorced, they have their kids. Everyone's okay, well, that's how, you know, I think it's more acceptable, like because of their age versus if they were had been, you know, our age and um, that had been the case. Yeah, and I, I wanna move on and talk about other ways that we casually violate or resist a matter normativity um, as single people. I read a lot of like articles about people going out to eat alone. And it's so weird how things are framed on the internet that like, it's like the worst thing in the world. And like the issue wasn't that like, oh, it's bad to eat alone, but it was framed in a way that like, when you go to eat alone, you have to do it in a very particular way because there are people looking at you and the people looking at you think you're weird. So when you go there, if there's a bar, sit at the bar, don't sit at a table. If there isn't a bar there, then when you sit on the table, you have to like make sure that like you're doing something, you're reading a book or like you are, you're occupied or on a business meeting or something to make it look like you, you know, don't meet anyone else's company. When really in actuality, nobody cares. People are so self-absorbed in their own stuff that nobody's looking at you to see if you're at the restaurant by yourself. Nobody's bothered by other people. And so I thought that was really very comical um, to watch their like entire articles written about how to sit, how to go to the, to, out to eat by yourself and not look and look cool while you do it. Um, and just like, you know, other ways that, you know, things that are romantic, um, are just things that you can really just do by yourself. Um, like going to movies by yourself. I do that all the time. I love movies by myself. I love going to the mall by myself because I feel like nobody's rushing me. I can take my own time. I can do what I want to do. So yeah, I just think that it's very interesting how like we frame things in society when really like nothing is that big of a deal. I think that like you can absolutely enjoy your own company. And another thing that I wanted to bring up is in terms of eating alone, um, I remember talking to someone maybe last year and talking about like, why did we come to Vassar? And one person said it was because when she went into the Deece, like when she visited Vassar, went to the Deece, we have specific places where you can sit down and eat alone that sort of make it not weird. It makes it very like easy and casual to just sit up, sit up at the countertop and just eat by yourself and just walk out and it's cool. And I never, I've never thought about like how, cause I've gone to the Deece alone a couple of, you know, many times. And the fact that we just, we just know where to sit. You're alone at the Deece, just sit up at the high top chairs and eat and leave. Yeah, Newell, I was also thinking about the Ds when you were talking because something I was thinking about recently being a senior is like my first year, I was terrified of eating alone at the Ds. And I think in general, just like in first year, I was just terrified of being alone um, and like not having friends or also, but also like being perceived as not having friends. Um, I think was like a big thing that I was like, oh no, oh no, if I eat alone at the Ds, like everyone's gonna look at me and be like, oh, look at that first year. Um, you know, doesn't have any friends to eat with. And, you know, now as a senior, I just go in and I'm like, I swear to God, even if I know you, don't talk to me. <laughs> like, I'm here to eat and leave. But just thinking about like this culture of imagined surveillance of like this weird feeling that everyone's watching you and like judging you for your decisions and how it's so stigmatized to just like enjoy being alone, to desire eating by yourself. Um, and I think even now, there's kind of this idea of like, oh, like sometimes you eat alone 
but that's because like you're really busy and overwhelmed with work or like your schedule didn't align with your friends um, and not like sometimes you just want to eat a meal in peace by yourself with your own thoughts and your own company um, so even thinking about how like in this context of college those ideas are so pervasive I really appreciate you bringing that up yeah I also feel like your experience cannot go a lot of people have felt that experience of like not wanting to eat in the d alone i eat in the d alone a lot because like i i don't know why i like to study in the d sometimes so i just go there and i'll just eat by myself but i know like the thing about being perceived people do people watch in the beast so i can understand why like people would you know not feel comfortable to like sit in the d alone But I do think it's really interesting that you brought up the whole thing about like, you know, how to like (laughs) eat alone. Like you, you can't be like idle. You have to like be doing something because, you know, I feel like if you are doing something, you're not really going to be thinking like who's watching me. But I do think that's really interesting that they are writing articles on how to do that. So another um, thing that I researched on, and just honestly, just from like having conversations at this school on like polyamorous relationships was like the stigma that comes with it. Um, There's often like a sense from people that polyamorous relationships aren't as valid or committed or like as real as monogamous ones are. Because like, if you love someone, why would you want to share, you know? But research, however, shows that these these relationships aren't any less psychologically healthy or happy than traditional monogamous ones. And they they may even have some additional benefits. Um, The levels of satisfaction and commitment in consensual non-monogamous relationships are similar to those in monogamous ones. Um, While people in polyamorous relationships tend to report more trust and less jealousy on average, as well, people might have more of their needs met and experience greater sexual fulfillment. Yeah, I really appreciated what you said about like, oh, if you love someone, why would you want to share? Um, Because I think that touches back to what I think you were saying earlier, Niwal, about this idea of like love being a form of possession or rather possession being a form of love and also thinking about this idea of love as this scarce resource, this scarcity mindset of like, there's only so much love. And if my partner's love and affection are being directed elsewhere, then I have less of it where I don't think that's true. Like I, and it's so interesting because I feel like to a certain extent, I think it applies to friendships because I think like the idea of like having a best friend or like having multiple best friends and those things like they do come to play but I think it's like oftentimes me really loving one of my friends doesn't make my other friends question whether I love them as well whereas in this context of romantic sexual relationships like all of a sudden it's like oh if you have romantic or sexual feelings for someone else that means that like the romantic and sexual feelings that you have expressed towards me are less worthy or somehow diminished Um, and I think that that's 
yeah, that's a very culturally imposed way of thinking about romantic and sexual love. And I also think that a big part of the stigma around polyamory comes from the ways that it's been misused in often very like patriarchal, heterosexist ways. And this idea of like people being like unfaithful or, you know, yeah, people being unfaithful and saying like, oh, like I can't help it. You know, this is like, you know, I'm polyam. So like I cheat on people, which is like not at all what a polyamorous relationship is about but I think that like that's part of where the stigma comes in of like the ways that these identities and ideologies have been co-opted to justify really harmful things that aren't about like affirmative consent and disrupting the ways that we relate to one another or disrupting the normative ways that we relate to one another but rather about replicating harmful structures of like you know this idea that men are able to go out and have multiple relationships whereas you know women and femme people are not so I guess just thinking about like the the ways that these ideologies are weaponized and co-opted when they have so much disruptive potential okay yeah so as we kind of wind down come to a close we maybe wanted to end with some closing reflections on our personal experiences and just thinking through the ways that we are trying to be more intentional about our relationships platonic uh, or otherwise and the ways that we disrupt normativity in our day-to-day lives if anyone has any stories or experiences that they'd be willing to share or just some closing thoughts I definitely feel like I have been trying to be more intentional about my platonic relationships, especially because that because we're like in a pandemic, we were in quarantine, now we're in like a pandemic, like, you know, that whole thing that we're going through. And I feel like a lot of that has been through gift giving. I'm very awful at it. I It's not one of my specialties but so many of my friends love to receive like gifts or like find gifts really meaningful to them and so I feel like that's been a way that I've definitely been stepping outside of my comfort zone to like you know find well I can't make I definitely cannot make things so it has to be buying things um but yeah seeing things that I that I know they'll like and like getting it for them and you know trying to like mail it to them mailing letters to them and so I think that like although those things are like traditionally romantic things to like get just because gifts for like romantic partners I'm trying to do that more with my friends because you know we've just been in such a time where social connection has been limited for so long and you know especially because I've gone very very long 9 10 11 12 months without seeing some of my friends and so I felt like it was important for me to do something that was a little extra a little out of like the norm for me to really like show that those relationships are so meaningful to me. Yeah, something that I've been really trying to think through and put into practice recently has been this idea of like, what would it look like if I prioritized my friendships as a way of kind of like organizing my life? And I'm not saying that this like is the best way or that this is the right way, but I think so much of how I previously have conceptualized things is like through my relationship to like school or work and then like fitting my friends in where they there's like spots for them um and even like thinking about postgrad I've been thinking about like the model that I feel like I've been following until now has been like oh I'm gonna find a job and I'm gonna move there and you know if it happens to be near my friends that's great but like at the end of the day sometimes you know you have to do what you have to do but thinking about like is there any job in the world that like I 
and like this is going to be a priority above the connections that I have and like what might it look like if I was like oh I'm gonna move there to like to be with my friends and then I'm gonna find something there or you know instead of being like I'm taking a full class load and I can hang out with you like when I have you know five minutes to spare being like actually this is senior year and I actually would really like to make seeing my friends a priority so I'm going to only take three and a half credits this semester things like that of just really thinking about like what have we been conditioned to um, prioritize and what would it look like to really disrupt that and recognize that that's not how we have to live if that's not how we want to live and again like I think there's a lot of privilege in me being able to say that um, especially like class privilege but yeah just really thinking through like restructuring or pushing back against the ways that we've been told to structure our lives in ways that really deprioritize um, certain kinds of relationships. Yeah, I would have to agree. Just like moving with intention when it comes to like friendships, I think is important, especially with this whole pandemic. Like my friends and I haven't, weren't really able to make actual memories together. So like trying to look for any moment, whether it's just like staying in and watching a movie to like kind of like make those memories and, you know, actually make time and spend time with them and enjoy the time that I'm spending time with them. Because sometimes when I have like work, it's like continuously on my mind. So like just being able to like free myself of those obligations and actually spend time with them and enjoy their time is really important. Yeah, so I think another question that I'd love to kind of wrap up with and end on this positive note is just like, what are some lessons that you've learned from your friends and from your friendships that maybe you wouldn't have been able to experience or learn through a romantic relationship? And really thinking about the fact that like friendships aren't just like watered down versions of romantic relationships, but that they offer a very unique and really valuable way of relating to one another. And like, I know I've learned so much from my friends and like have so much love and appreciation for them. Um, And I would love to hear about some, some, yeah, some things that you feel like you've gained from those special relationships that you hold in your lives. I think for me, I kind of hold friendships higher than relationships just in, I don't know, when it comes to like romantic dynamics, I feel like I'm very like, I have so much anxiety and I overthink a lot, but with like friendships, I don't overthink as much and I'm like able to be like more vulnerable. And also I just feel like, you know, friends, like they're there to support you. And it, it like that, having that romantic dynamic, it not it added into it actually helps me. So I really appreciate like just like my friends allowing like allowing myself to be vulnerable and then also my friends like seeing my vulnerability and also like checking me when I do things that you know are wrong and helping me grow as a person and vice versa I think is really important and they do like they are they they help my character a lot because they don't just allow me to like dig myself into a grave they help you know they pick me up out of it so I really appreciate that yeah I think for me, what I just appreciate so much about my friendships is that they feel so much like family. Like there are some people that I've been friends with for like almost like over 15 years. And I don't know, I just feel like there's just a sense of warmth when like I'm able to like go over to like their uncle's house and go to, you know, their cousin's birthday party and like just like be a part of be a part of their extended family and have like their family identify with me and know me and like see me as family and just have it all as, you know, this experience of like we're all integrated and 
were just kind of like these lifelong companions that I know that I can go to their parents for support and like that it's like kind of like a it's like a chain you know it's not just them but like it's like everybody else that's connected to them yeah being able to have a friendship that is an extension of family is has been super rewarding super important for me yeah um i think for myself uh, it warms my heart to hear both of your experiences and i think something else that i would love to add is like I think that there's so much power in the dynamic and like very fluid nature of friendships because I think that and I think this isn't like something necessarily inherent to friendships versus romantic relationships but rather like the way that we have been conditioned to conceptualize these relationships but like oftentimes I think with romantic relationships I feel so much pressure to like label and to like it almost feels more contractual of like we are now in a romantic relationship and therefore you know that entails such and such expectations and like obviously communicating those things and those needs is not inherently a bad thing at all like i think it's a really good thing but i think there's something that has been really nurturing for me in recognizing that like you don't have to label or i don't feel the pressure to like label a friendship like i'm not like we are friends now and that means that like this is how it's gonna be for until like our friendship terminates like it's just like I've had friendships that have gone through like really close periods and then have been kind of like they're like you know a period of dormancy um, and then like maybe there's reconnection and just like that dynamic nature um, that allows for so much flexibility and so much grace I feel like in how we relate to one another um, and also for myself I think like maybe this is me exposing my attachment issues but I feel like the moment that I label something I'm like okay so like it's gonna end someday like what's it gonna be like when the end comes and I think something I've been so appreciative of with my friends is just like this really deep trust that I feel of like there's people that I haven't talked to in years but I feel so confident that like we could pick back up right where we left off and like just have a conversation and if I ever needed something, like I could fall back on that. And I think that that's so special and important and something that isn't emphasized enough in romantic relationships. Yeah, all this to say, big fan of my friends. Thank you to all of you for sharing such amazing stories, such amazing personal accounts of just of your friendships, uh, going into a matter of activity and like really understanding it as a concept and understanding the ways in which like we've conditioned to accept it. Thank you all for listening to our sixth episode of Figuring Out. Um, we always enjoy having these conversations and we always enjoy making this content for you. And we hope that you stop by again.